Hello friends and welcome back. Welcome back to the gaming interview room. Yeah, I know this is the second gaming interview room episode we have and, and it is because uh, I am with somebody who is very, very special, uh, very multi-talented and um, the gaming is just one aspect, is not everything. So we have to talk an awful lot of stuff, which is um, very exciting indeed. Um, I have the immense pleasure of, having, of being in the company, or at least cyber company, of um, Peter Wax. Peter, welcome. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Thank you. Thank you for the welcome. Uh, I am doing fantastic. It is, uh, I'm, I'm over in Colorado. It's a kind of cool but bright afternoon, really relaxing outside on the deck, getting to talk to you. Um, uh, How are you doing this evening? I am, I am very thrilled to be here with you. I was in, I was in really thrilled indeed. Um, because you, you have done an awful lot of things. And um, my friend um, Alex recommended me to you. And I, I always pay attention uh, when Alexei says something because he's, he's a clever lad. Uh, and he knows people, and um, he knows people with with talent. And although I know you for for creating the uh, the, the card game Cyberpunk that came out um, quite a while ago now, but yeah, that was back in two thousand and three. Yeah, but that is not the the only creative endeavor that you have undertaken <laughs> in your life. I mean, you you have done a lot of things. <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, when I'm talking on panels, I like to introduce myself as the most famous person that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> uh, the, the creative career started for me when I was about six years old, and I was an actor uh, on the set of Revenge of the Nerds. And uh, it, it, was such a, it became such a cultural icon for, for my people, for, for the geeks, for the gamers, for the science fiction lovers, the fantasy lovers. That, that it has really been a staple that has guided me through my life of always wanting to be involved in, in creativity. Uh, not only, you know, starting as an actor, I, I acted in a couple movies, did the, the child actor thing, mostly as a small extra, not as, you know, a giant star or anything like that. I had a few speaking lines here and there, mm -hmm. but it got me into writing and I was professionally selling stories and winning competitions by the time I was in high school. Wow. Coming out of that, <laughs> I went into games because I've always loved games and gaming. You know, by the time I was, oh gosh, 11 or 12, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and White Wolf. And uh, I got into cyberpunk also, the old Artal, and uh, just loved gaming in every form. Uh, so I, I decided that I wanted to design games and I designed Cyberpunk, the collectible card game. I did uh, several other small game designs that sold but did not get published over the course of that time. And uh, those rights are reverting, and I'm looking at, over the next few years, publishing a few of those. That... But coming out of gaming, I ended up in Hollywood, <laughs> and I worked on the set of Alias for a short while as a creative consultant. Uh, one of the big things that they wanted me to analyze as a creative consultant was the viability of turning Alias, the TV show, into a game. Uh, coming out of that i got back into writing i put together behind these eyes which is a horror graphic novel that was a finalist for the bram stoker a couple years ago mm -hmm. i wrote a time travel book that can be read in any order and you still get build up conflict resolution there's never been a book written like that and that got me a guest speaking gig for a local chapter of mensa and 
that could not have happened if it wasn't for gaming, by the way. That was what allowed me to crack that, that plot structure. Uh, but since then, I mean, I've, I really have been all over, and there's sky's the limit. It's so much fun to just create in all of these fields that there's no reason not to. I can imagine that. I mean, that, that sounds absolutely amazing. But how did, um, I mean, firstly, if, if you were already um, uh, getting awards when you were so young, writing, um, writing stuff, um, what made you go into different areas? Why didn't you continue with the writing? Because obviously <laughs> you are very talented. You, you could have made a living, a very good living out of writing stuff. <laughs> Two reasons. One, I loved gaming. And I had a large group of friends that we wanted to create this game. And I, I designed a structure that they all loved. They thought it was the greatest thing ever, that circular structure for the wind philosophy of cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. Uh, the fact that there was no, you know, rare hunt going and trying to find those five ultra rares to, to build your deck. Every card was viable. Every card was valuable. They loved that. And I was going to continue writing, but they, they talked to me and they convinced me that I needed to be writing the storyline for the card game since it was a storyline-based game. And so I really took a break from that. And then coming out of that, well, it's the age-old story. I met a girl and she didn't think that I could make money as a writer, so she wanted me working corporate. And, and you did very well working in corporate. I was saying really well. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I did, but I hated it. <laughs> uh, so I, I stepped away from it and got back to creative uh, after we got divorced. Okay. And uh, what, what, was that the time when you were working in, in Alias or, or was it before that? Uh, that, was, that was around the time that I worked uh, on the set of Alias, yes. That was near the end of that relationship. Uh, Going out to ABC Studios was good. The The money that that brought in was something that she was happy with. Uh, but she she and I had made the decision at that point that I needed to focus less on creative and focus more on networking, marketing, things like that. And uh, I actually ended up as a small business consultant, of all things, uh, working on grassroots and community outreach programs and things like that. It was fun. Um, but... Like I said, it really wasn't where my heart was. No, which is, to be honest, is, I, I, th I think most creative people would probably agree with you and, and empathize with with that feeling because you're creative. You want to create. That, that's what your exactly. mind is good at. Exactly. At what point when you were creating the, the, the cyberpunk um, car game, at what point the the eureka moment come that you thought, I, I have something here? <laughs> you know, I don't think I actually believed that it was going to be liked and loved until I saw the pre-order numbers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the raw game design was a lot of fun to do. I, I tend to think outside the box. I tend to think in very different ways. Uh, even in the, the early days of Magic the Gathering, I was designing decks that... Uh, that nobody would think was possible. Uh, it was during the time of Arabian Nights, I was playing a complete green creature deck for any Magic fans out there during a time where everyone was playing direct damage blue and direct damage red, and I was winning tournaments with it. And that that type of mindset of looking for the things that nobody else sees is, is what drew me to creating Cyberpunk in the first place. And I love the dark, gritty reality of the Cyberpunk-style world. Uh, which is why I was so glad to get to work on Interface Zero uh, 2.0 recently. Hmm. Uh, but but that doesn't mean that I had faith that people would love it. I, it just meant that I loved it. And you know, we we hired a a lawyer to go talk to the pawnsmiths for us, and we got to go 
meet Mike Pondsmith, and I got to run a game of Cyberpunk at Gen Con SoCal in 2002 to show him just how cyberpunk I was. And uh, he, he loved the game that I ran. It was this excellent 10-table game where a bunch of different teams were all trying to hit the same facility. I had people talking together on headsets. It was, it was a blast. But that was all to, to kind of spotlight and focus in. And so I spent so much of my time during the construction of the game and the initial creation of the cards and the card sets and everything like that, fighting to prove to people that it was cool and it was good, that there was no moment of wow, it is good for somebody else telling me until the, the alpha testers and the beta testers started pre-ordering from their stores. And I saw those first numbers go come in and realized that we had thousands of players. That was when I was like, wow, we're launching with thousands of players. Okay, people actually like this. This is amazing. So that, that was the point for me. And it is quite an endorsement to how interesting the game was at the time. At the time when... There was nothing like today's crowdfunding. There wasn't any Kickstarter. There was no nothing. And yet people wanted that game. They wanted you to bring it out. They really did. Uh, it, was, it was a crazy ride. Like I said, we had uh, 1,500 alpha testers around the globe who were downloading PDFs of the card sets that we were coming up with, putting them together and... Uh, playing the games, getting us notes back, telling people about it, telling game stores, look at this, this is going to be amazing. And that that support is what brought the funding in. It's what made uh, our Talsorian take notice of it. And yeah, I, I don't know what would have happened if we had kickstarted it uh, because we were forced to try something new. I don't know if it would have happened the same way now that those tools are available. Hmm. In terms of um, the, the design of the game itself, mm -hmm. um. How did you approach that structure? How did you approach that process? There were several design flaws that I spotted with every other collectible card game out there. And they're, they're flaws to me as a gamer. Mm -hmm. They are not flaws from the, the business perspective of having to sustain people's salaries. Uh, one of those flaws was the inaccessibility of winning cards. The simple truth is that if you play collectible card games, you need to have the big bad cards, the, the, the awesome cards that are super expensive. You need to buy a lot of booster packs to try and hunt down those cards. You need to trade a lot to try and get them uh, or just outright, you know, buy them from a shop that carries rares. I hated that. I had a huge collection of magic back in the day. And I was one of the guys that, you know, I had 10, 12 buddies that all played magic with me. And I hated the fact that none of them could build competitive decks, so I let them just dip in and build decks out of my cards whenever they wanted, take them to tournaments, whatever. I didn't care about the, the value. I cared about the good game. So when I started to approach Cyberpunk, the very first thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to make a, a card game in which every single card was important, that every single card could work with something else to create a win. Uh, that way, somebody who could only, could only afford a deck of commons with a couple of uncommons could still have a chance in a tournament, could still go out and have some fun. So to support that philosophy, uh, I realized that there were a couple of other problems that I was going to have to face. Uh, the first problem being that if there was only one path to achieving victory, well, then you're only going to have one set of cards that can achieve that victory. So I needed to start coming up with different win conditions, which is why you had the, the three core win conditions, <coughs> uh, as well as all of the sponsor 
specialty win conditions. Uh, you know, by the time the first set released, there were what ten different winning uh, sets of, of conditions under which one could win the game. Uh, so every single game, you never knew what was going to happen. Mm. It could be anything. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to do was I did not want, I, I wanted to make sure that there was not a dominancy of a particular type of deck. So I started approaching the design from the philosophy of putting weaknesses into each type of win condition. And what I ended up with was a big circle of, you know, deck A beats deck B, which beats deck C, which beats deck D, which beats deck E, which beats deck A. So it was a circle so that even in the optimized purest form of the game, where we were just running numbers instead of actually using cards and psychology, there was always a certain random variable set of variables to who was going to win coming into a tournament uh, based on deck design and which win condition they were aiming for. So uh, those were the, the three major things. And then the other thing that was a lot of fun with Cyberpunk was <laughs> uh, in the rule book, it specifically stated uh, that our rules on cheating were that you should not get caught cheating. Right. And uh, that was to encourage people to cheat and not get caught and be clever. Uh, because cyberpunk is, well, the genre begs for people to push it to the edge and push it past the edge. And so we wanted psychology to really impact the game. And we wanted people to be hyper aware and observing not just the cards, but their environment to watch for the other player cheating. So we had to figure out how to encourage cheating while still telling people that cheating's not okay, uh, which is why we designed that, that very specific sentence of, you should not get caught cheating. Uh, and we did end up with, uh, with some absolutely fantastic games where judges on the outside spotted players cheating, just like they were supposed to be, but the other player didn't notice it, and it altered the, the victory. It altered who won. And that is so cyberpunk. <laughs> that, that really is very, very much the, the, the spirit of cyberpunk. I, I really like the sound of that an awful lot. Um, now, the, the game... Uh, is, is no longer in, in production. The, the, the game had its, its lifespan and, and it, it, it went away. Um, do you miss it? Uh, I really do. You know, the, the truth of the matter is, and I'll just put this out there right now, we were all in our early 20s and we did not know how to run a company. The game had the fan base, the game had the sales to keep going. Uh, it was growing and growing and we overhired. We had too many people working for the amount of money being brought in uh, by about, I would say five or six employees too many. And it just, it bled out and killed the company. And I wish that we had been smarter. I wish that maybe we had not tried to hire solely from our group of friends and instead looked at actual business professionals, but we were gamers and we were having a blast. and. You know, that's that's kind of how it went down. And so because of that, yeah, of course I miss it because it, it died before it was supposed to. It did not go through its full life arc. It did not get to have all of the sets, all of the, the cool plans. Uh, there was this the, the five year plan for the game involved non collectible cards as well as collectible cards. We had these things called city blocks and city blocks focused in on specific map coordinates of specific cities around the world. And it was a non-collectible set of it, just a box set of 20 cards that you could buy for, you know, five, 10 bucks, whatever. And you got all 20 of the cards and they were playable with any tournament. 
Hmm. And, you know, there were all sorts of cool little plans that we had, little ways to expand and enrich the game. We never got to play with. We never got to test. We never got to give that to the market. And I, I really wish we had. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I miss it. It's, it's quite interesting because that hiring more people than you needed and, and going into um, your mates rather than looking for professional advice is a situation that has repeated itself in the gaming industry for well since, since the beginning you know these are so many companies that come together and say hey guys come on we can make a game oh i know this one who can do this and i know this one who can do that and after that the reality is that it doesn't really happen like that. it doesn't it's work well there there's a reason for it when it comes to gaming and designing a game Nobody sits down and designs an adventure and hobby game like a collectible card game, a board game, or a role-playing game. Nobody sits down and designs a game like that saying, oh, hey, I'm going to get rich quick because of this. Hmm. They sit down and they say, I love this world. I love this setting. I love this rule set. I want to share that. And it's going to be a long, hard fight, and maybe I'll make some money, but I want to get it out into the world. So when you're constructing your company, instead of sitting there looking for who's going to bring the bottom line in, who's going to bring this in, that in. What you end up with is a bunch of people who get together saying, we all love this thing, so we're going to fight for it. And then when there is a modicum of success, it's, it's hard to know what to do with it. Hmm. True. I can, yeah, I can, I, can, I can easily imagine that. But fast, fast forward to a, a few years, and you obviously have kept the passion for, for gaming going. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that gaming is pretty much in your blood. <laughs> Absolutely it is. What have you learned from these experiences that you can put into practice today to create more successful projects? Uh, well, you know, some of the things that I've learned, like working with David Jarvis over at Interface Zero, uh, he's Gunmetal Games. He is Gunmetal Games. He has a huge passion for, for creating games and settings, but he is very focused on running the business side, writing when he has extra time, and hiring writers and designers to work with him. So he, he has actually taken a very good approach uh, <laughs> towards that. And one of the things that I have learned is... You know, look for the guys like that. Look for the guys that are going to keep their IP alive, uh, their intellectual property alive, and and work with them. You know, I I manage uh, a hybrid independent press that publishes science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin Anderson's Wordfire Press that eats up a lot of time for me. I am the apprentice of the fastest writing man in. <laughs> the field of science fiction and fantasy. I mean, Kevin puts out, you know, uh, on a bad year, five books, on a good year, eight or nine books. That is insane. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, he's everywhere. I mean, you look at his career, 130 novels published. He's got, you know, like 60-some-odd bestsellers, X-Files, Star Wars, Dune, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you name it. Like, Kevin has been hired to write for it because he's such a fantastic writer and he puts out quality. Well, imagine being the apprentice of that guy. I have to write fast and I have to write at high quality. Mm. Uh, so that's another huge time issue on me. So, so I guess what I'm getting at is that while I do have a lot of creative projects going and I, I focus on a lot of output, I have learned 
to not overextend. Mm. Uh, I have learned that I have to manage my time and actually watch my time and, and not trust that me and a group of, of people that have a lot of passion are going to be able to accomplish something. Mm. We, we have to have the business sense people in there too, or if there is passion, there has to be a heck of a lot of work ethic, uh, which is not to say there wasn't work ethic uh, back in the day with cyberpunk. There absolutely was. It just, there was just... <laughs> too much of the friend stuff going on <laughs> um and by the way talking about interface 0 2.0 um what an absolutely amazing product that is i i got my copies this week and good heaven that looks incredible thank you thank you david did a fantastic job with that book i had a lot of fun helping create the the reboot for the world i had <laughs> a lot of hours in trying to figure out how to jam all the information we wanted into it in. Uh, there's a, a lot of fun little things like that, that we're getting to play with. I don't know uh, how far you've gotten into it, but one of the things that we did since it's a cyberpunk setting is we got to develop these personalities for the different ways we wanted to put information to the reader, to the gamer. Mm -hmm. And we did that by doing mock blogs and having comments and trackbacks. That is so, fantastic. Yeah, it presents itself as though you are in the cyberpunk world gathering information. And just getting to do that, and oh my gosh, the layout that he did, that is such a gorgeous mm -hmm. book. It, it is. I, I literally received it two days ago, so I haven't, have, I haven't had the chance to start reading it. I was just flicking through the pages because being, um, being a graphic artist, it's, it's my passion is to look at books and see what, how they're made. And, and I was blown away completely blown away it, it looks absolutely glorious and every single piece of artwork in that book is just fantastic yeah yeah it really is uh, i <laughs> i am excited about the future projects that that david and i are talking about as well uh, i mean not only did i help create the the reboot for the world uh i am i wrote the solar system book I am partway through writing the Malmart, the gear catalog book uh, for Interface Zero. So there's a lot of additional stuff coming out. Uh, I am in the final phase of editing the media tie-in novel for Interface Zero that explains the event that rebooted it from version one to version two. So Interface, Interface Zero is here to stay. Sounds like you really have plans for the long run. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. All the stuff that I did not get to put into Cyberpunk back in the day because the project ended too early, I'm finally getting to bring back out. Things like augmented reality, things like gamer submersion into the world using the blogging style, using the trackback style. All of those things that I really wanted to do with Cyberpunk to, to get it grittier, to get it down to the street level that I did not get to. Yeah. That sounds yeah. really cool. David is being amazingly accommodating and loving the stuff that I'm giving to him. So it's a great relationship I have with gunmetal games and I I'm there behind that that project forever that that sounds fantastic and actually talking about cyberpunk and the the, the passing of time um how has the um, advancement of uh, computing and, and real science in the real world changed your approach your vision for what cyberpunk uh, could and should be how has the real world affected you? <laughs> Uh, 
it's affected me tremendously. Uh, the story that, that I think I'm going to go to is back in the late 90s, maybe 2000. I went to a William Gibson book signing. And William Gibson got the, the question uh, of why don't you, you know, why, why don't you write raw cyberpunk anymore? And he answered to the crowd that cyberpunk was really cool. It was this new genre. It was getting to do things that no one else had done. And, and he and his friends used to sit around and talk about the what ifs. But back at the time when cyberpunk was first born, they also thought jean jackets were still cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in a, <laughs> right. <laughs> So in approaching, it is true. And, and then in approaching cyberpunk, I've tried to watch that technology curve. The, the raw essence of cyberpunk is not the technology. As much as it is man with the interior machine, uh, humanity struggling to overcome the machine within, more than that, it's, it's, a, it's man versus power. It's corporate versus street. It's always losing but never giving up hope and fighting to win a lot of people think that cyberpunk is the the darkest genre but i actually think it's the most optimistic because if you go in and look at at things like blade runner that these hopeless situations where you cannot possibly win uh, as the basis for the genre but people still fight because we're indomitable and i love that about the genre so so i try to reflect that as i watch our technology grow and really the, the shift has become cyberspace and virtual reality, not so much a thing. Now when I look at it, I look at augmented reality, hyper-reality, mm. Google Glass, things like that, and say, okay, what's the natural evolution of these things? Uh, you know, Twitter. Twitter is a huge thing. Twitter is so cyberpunk, it's ridiculous. Uh, one of the things that I, that I put on the table for Interface Zero is that Twitter culture actually evolved into something called hashtagging. And hashtaggers are basically info brokers. They trade gossip and they trade information and anybody that subscribes to their feed can go in and read their hashtags for you know a penny a read, but you develop a list of 100,000 followers and you're sitting there pumping out 20 pieces of, of street information every hour, you've got a viable living that you can make. And that, that hashtagging system replacing media culture to some degree, you know, that, that's one of the, the things that I see as potentially happening. And that's, that's because of Twitter. That's because of those 140 character bytes of information that we have trained ourselves culturally to start to parse and even prefer. And, and actually, that is indeed happening. You know, at the moment, um, Twitter does approach you. If you have X number of followers, uh, Twitter will approach you saying, hey, would you like to make business? I, I can put you in contact with people. And if you tweet about their products, um, they will pay you. Yeah, absolutely. That, that happens. <laughs> that is now. Yeah. And that culture is just going to grow. It's just going to become stronger and stronger. That is, yeah, that is, that is quite incredible. Um, now, you have worked as well in the world of graphic novels. Are you, uh, do, do you have in mind or plans to do some sort of uh, uh, Interface Zero graphic novels to go with a line of, of a product? That is mostly up to David Jarvis. What I can say is that I do have a contract from Gunmetal Games uh, saying that I am allowed to talk with my comic book contacts on behalf of Gunmetal Games. And when I sit down, there are three comic book companies that I'm talking to right now about different projects. Uh, Interface Zero is one of the treatments that I do put on the table. 
because that would be amazing seriously wow yeah i think so too uh and i i am hoping for the chance to get to write those uh one of the companies has said probably not although they haven't given me the definitive no yet but the other two uh all four of the the treatments that i have on the table are looking really good Wow. So there may uh, there may be four comic series coming from me over the next number of years, and uh, hopefully one of them will be Interface Zero. That should keep you busy. Comics are pretty quick to write. Uh, it's the outlining and plotting a story. If you're good at it and you've developed it as as a skill, is a pretty quick thing to do, and. Really, a comic script is just being able to think cinematically. And part of my writing process is that I have Netflix and Hulu playing in the background while I'm writing. Mm -hmm. I think very cinematically. I think in pictures when it comes to my storytelling. So it's very easy for me in particular to uh, sit down and crank out a comic script because I've usually got a mini movie of how I want the story to go in my head already. Okay, that's that sounds that really sounds very very interesting way of working. Doesn't doesn't it get distracting to have anything in the background? No, absolutely not. Everybody's process is different. Some people they need isolation. They they need isolation. They need quiet. They need to just sit down and have the zone to create. I am a multitasker at heart. Uh, one of the other things is I'm studying to take my magician test with the the magic castle. Uh, and you know, become a full full fledged magician soon. I, I like being uh, talking to people, entertaining. I like activity around me, and the pursuits that I follow, they tend to go. You know, look at gaming. Gaming is a social activity. It's a creative. It's a jointly creative activity where you have noise and activity because you're working with other players and other people to create. That carries through to all of my creative endeavors. So. If I'm not out hanging with friends while I'm writing, then yeah, I need some noise and, and light and activity going on because that's my process. That's, that sounds absolutely fascinating, I have to say. Um, looking again from, from the past to, to the now, what mm -hmm. are the biggest changes that you have seen in the gaming, both the industry and the demographics? There have always been women in the gaming industry. The gaming industry has been shifting over the last decade to make it a more comfortable place for them to express themselves. I am very, very happy about the leveling of genders that I have seen in the game industry. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't like it when it was a boys club. <laughs> uh, it, it needs more expression in it. And honestly, the more people that are in the industry, the better for all of us. Uh, that that is one change that I've seen that uh, I'm really happy with. Another big thing is that with uh, drive-through having taken off over the last 10 years, with Kickstarter, with the open licensing systems, and, and all of these things, more and more creators have the ability to reach an audience, and that is just fantastic. You know, the the number, the raw number of games that are coming out has increased. The accessibility of those games has increased. The, it seems like it has been a little bit of a struggle for some of the retailers to keep up with. But, you know, we, 
we lost Valhalla's. We lost some of the staples here in Colorado that were some of the giant game stores, but we've got a bunch of new game stores that are opening. So, you know, so long as those spaces are still out there and the retailers are being supported, uh, I, I love all the net activity. The, the, like you said, the wrong number of games, it just, it boggles me. It's amazing. It's like, I, I have, you know, I want to go play a game in which I can be an elf mm-hmm. on a motorcycle who is addicted to virtual reality and anime. And, oh, look, somebody's created that. There's a system I can go play that gives me exactly that. Awesome. And 10 years ago, that, that wasn't the case. You know, you had to kind of revamp and rework the games that you were playing to get precisely what you wanted sometimes. Yeah, no, that is very true indeed. Um, to wrap it up a little bit, um, tell me, you, you have a, an interesting project coming up, a, a multimedia project with, uh, with Steven Sears uh, called VLAN. <laughs> uh, what is that multimedia project? What, what does multimedia mean in there? Okay, so uh, Steven Sears, uh, for, for your listeners, amazing guy, just brilliant, mind-boggling career. He, he wrote for Riptide, for Hardcastle McCormick, for the A-Team TV series, for the Swamp Thing TV series. Uh, he created Sheena of the Jungle. He was uh, one of the Leeds co-executive producer for Xena, Warrior Princess. Uh, he has got this amazing career uh, of creation in Hollywood. And he and I met and really hit it off and decided that we wanted to work on a project together. And I had this, this world that it was half-formed, villainy. Um, and it's about this girl, Annie Oakley. And it just, it wasn't there. And so I, I kind of pitched him on it. I was like, well, Steve, what do you think about this world? And he said, oh, well, that's good. But what if he did this? What if he did this? And I said, oh, but if we did that, you could do this. And then we could do that. And then he came back with, oh, yeah. And if you did that, we could do And it just concreted into this amazing amazing setting and so we talked about the strategy that we wanted to pursue because we come from such different backgrounds uh i i don't script in hollywood uh, i i would like to get into that in the future but i haven't made time for it yet you know the creative consultant stuff yes acting yes but but not actually writing for hollywood uh whereas that that's his wheelhouse and and me my wheelhouse is of course novels and games and uh you know coming up comics and he has a comic that he's working on with Kevin Anderson called Stalag X, uh, which is this awesome, like sci concentration camp in space, sci-fi aliens. And yeah, it's just, just really cool sci-fi piece. Um, I actually think the first issue of that is releasing soon. Uh, but so, so he's, he's, he had started to already branch out from Hollywood because of Stalag X. And that was kind of a connective tissue for the two of us uh, because I had my stoker for the, the graphic novel. And so we started talking about how to present this and we came up with full multimedia. What that means is that we are writing the first novel right now, but we also have a treatment in progress for a TV show. We have a treatment in progress for a movie. Uh, We have the treatment for a comic series. That is one of the four comic series that I was talking about. Uh, We are talking about potentially webisodes. We are talking about a radio show. Uh, We are talking about gaming. Uh, both electronic, role-playing, cards, the whole gamut. And we are designing from the get-go 
a world in which the stories we want to tell can be told across all of those formats instead of being primarily designed for one and then having to be adapted for others. That so that's what amazing. multimedia means. <laughs> Thank you. No, that, that, I mean, that really sounds absolutely amazing. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. One of the things that I have, um, I'm, I'm very blessed with, but it's also very annoying, is I have friends who are into different type of games and we all have different types of lives. And I would absolutely love to be able to have a platform, a game, a world in which I can, for example, during my commute, play on my tablet and then be able to transfer that somehow to the role-playing game and then being able to transfer that somehow to the board game when I meet different types of people. And it sounds like you guys are, are planning on doing something that could transfer, could cross-pollinate uh, between different platforms. And, and that is really, really exciting. We are. It, it's. I'm glad that it's exciting. It's It's hard work to figure out the mechanics, but it is... It's a lot of fun, and it's a great world. It's a great setting. It's uh, it's uh, oh, it's just fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I I can so so imagine myself playing with my character and then leveling up, playing my card game with my friends, and being able to take that leveled up character and take it into my role playing game and play with it with my friends. So then it can come back to my tablet and watch the movie on or the web <laughs> the web episode and, and say, Oh my god, this is what the adventure could go for and get the expansion. That hell man, you do that and, and you will be a god in my pantheon as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well thanks. Uh one of the challenges that I I'm actually looking at on the game side that I'm toying with is uh, how to allow a, a controller operator, mm -hmm. uh, basically a DM or a storyteller, uh, to be able to control uh, progression inside of an app as well so that an RPG group that meets for tabletop can be part of a larger group that is leveling inside of an electronic-based game. So you, you're, mm. you've hit exactly on it, on one of the challenges that I want to try to best. Well, that, that, that I, I cannot wait for that to, to happen. That should be amazing. Um, and, and, and literally just one last thing to, to, to finish this. But, okay, you have, apart from Villainy that you're working on, you have Singularity's Edge, Bloodletting Part 2, Hair of the Wolf, Second Paradigm, and Bloodletting, all mm. meant to be coming out. I mean, we are talking one, oh. two, three, four, five novels <laughs> this year well that that is actually shifted a second okay. paradigm and bloodletting part one are already out okay uh and they came out earlier this year bloodletting part two is actually bloodletting is book one of the affinities which is an epic fantasy and we had to split the book was too big so we had to split it into two parts so uh part two is is headed out later this year as well uh, just so that we get the full book one out. Uh, Villainy is actually going to be coming out early next year. We've got it completed, mm -hmm. but pre-orders are going to be announced this year. We're doing a very special edition of it. Uh, it is a hardcover edition called The Blood Cover. And we are doing a golden ticket in it. And we, I'm, I can't tell you what the prizes are going to be. I will just tell you that 
the prizes for the golden tickets are really, really cool. Where do I send my money? I want some. <laughs> Where do oh, I, right, right. <laughs> I can give you money now if you want to. <laughs> um, the, the, I will be announcing the pre-order soon. Don't worry. Uh, but uh, on top of that, of course, Hair of the Wolf is the electronic edition is going to be out in mid-October. That is a an urban fantasy dark comedy. Uh, it is a prelude book to a trilogy that I have done uh, called Gothier Than Thou, Perkier Than Thou, and Holier Than Thou. Uh, that is gods, vampires, werebears, werecats, uh, Anantians, Anubians, just all sorts of awesome urban fantasy stuff. And Hair of the Wolf focuses on the gods. The, the Gothier trilogy uh, focuses in on a particular vampire, a young goth boy, mm -hmm. a 16-year-old goth boy uh, named Winston Bartholomew Smith, and uh, is basically telling his story. And then that is also connected to the Ian Stone, Stone Cold Case Files, which is a 22-book series that the first book is sitting over at Bain. Uh, so there's that, that is actually part of a much larger, another much larger world that I am designing and creating. Uh, there's also a steampunk, uh, old, old style, like Arthur Conan Doyle style or Paul, Jonathan Polidori style, mm -hmm. uh, adventure book called the dandy boys, uh, the dandy boys mysteries, uh, that should be hitting shelves end of the year. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Like I said uh, earlier in the interview, being being the writing protege of Kevin Anderson, I have to be productive. Yeah, no I have kidding. To get a lot out. And you're doing incredibly well there. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yep. And also worth mentioning is that uh, with Wordfire Press as the managing editor, I have my own line of books from authors that I love that I have signed up to to produce and. Some of those that you can look forward to are uh, Colm Regan mm -hmm. uh, is putting out The Fly Guy. Uh, Colm is an Irish musician who wrote this amazing, like, gritty, noir, psycho thriller. Uh, like, it's deeply psychological about a fractured reality. And uh, notably, he was David Tennant's body double All on right. Doctor Who. Um, I got Mario Acevedo. Uh, the Felix Gomez series, book six of that, is going to be in my line. I have uh, the Colorado Gold winner, Aaron Ritchie, and his series, The Juniper Wars, that I'm going to be releasing. Uh, I just I have a fantastic line. Uh, David Boop, she murdered me with science. Uh, just fantastic, fun, like mystery, noir, urban fantasy. I, I get into that stuff. So uh, a tone of grit, a little bit of grit, and a little bit of humor in the in the books that I'm putting out. But that is another big thing is I'm putting together my own imprint of, of books uh, at this press. The, um, how are you coping is completely beyond me. <laughs> You're really busy. Well, yeah, I realized a long time ago that I had three big things in my life. I had creating stuff, sleep, and relationships. I gave up sleep and relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Peter, thank you very, very much indeed for being with me tonight. It's been absolutely fantastic. I cannot well, wait to you. see what you come up with. It's, it's, it's going to be amazing, really exciting. 
And thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Any anytime, you're welcome. Absolutely anytime, and I look forward to hearing from you again in the future because it's absolutely fascinating. Terrific. Thank you for listening. Hosting and production for this podcast have been by Paco Garcia, and the music's been composed by Kev Atzet. We would love to hear from you. Feedback and your questions are always welcome, and you can email us at podcast.gmsmagazine.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at GMS Magazine, and we are also on Facebook and Google+. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. Remember to subscribe to the GMS Magazine podcast channels in iTunes, and give us a review or two and a rating, please, and it's truly appreciated if you do. For more quality shows, remember to listen to other rooms like the RPG Room, the Interview Room and the Board Game Room and more rooms that might be coming very soon indeed. But, friends, until the next time, let the games continue. <laughs>